the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. This is your hour when Orlando Magic Senior Vice President Pat Williams sits down and speaks with authors who have written books on topics of interest and insight for listeners like you. And now, here's your host, Pat Williams. Welcome again, friends, to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour, right here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word in Orlando. Uh, We get on the air, uh, we got an engineer who just goes by one name, Gabe. That's how good he is. And Andrew Herdliska produces the show. My guest in the first segment, Bruce Buena de Mesquita, New York City, Julia Silver, professor of politics at New York University. His book is out, The Invention of Power, Popes, Kings, and the Birth of the West. Bruce, we're glad to have you here in Orlando. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It would be nicer to actually be in Orlando, where I'm sure a lot warmer than in New York. Well, it's in, it's, uh, oh, it's probably 70-something today, so. (laughs) (laughs) Bruce, tell me about your book. Well, the book, uh, The Invention of Power, was uh, motivated by a straightforward question. People speak about uh, Western or European exceptionalism. And they, they note that uh, Europe, Western Europe, is uh, more prosperous than most of the rest of the world. It's also more democratic. It's also more tolerant. Uh, and a lot of people try to explain that exceptionalism uh, by arguing that the Europeans um, are superior people, they're smarter people, they have a better religion, or what have you. Uh, and I didn't think that could possibly be the right explanation. Uh, so I decided, um, as a sort of sidebar to my normal research, to study that question. Uh, and what I concluded, based on careful logic, and careful assembly of evidence uh, is that Europe became, or parts of Europe became exceptional because of a treaty, a concordat signed between the Catholic Church and the Holy Roman Emperor and also the kings of England and France back in the 12th century. Um, so the book is about how that concordat changed the world, and how that continues to affect the uh, exceptionalism of the West to this day. Bruce, there are uh, eight chapters in your book. Uh, Let's get started. Chapter one is called Exceptionalism, Three Treaties About Power. Uh, Think of popes and kings, short-term decisions, Europe, Europe's unique feature. Uh, Fill us in on chapter one. Okay, so uh, chapter one, as I've intimated, 
um, points to this puzzle about why the West is exceptional. Uh, and it looks at some past historical evidence to establish that if Europeans are superior, they certainly weren't a thousand years ago. So if you look at estimates of per capita income, for example, uh, at, uh, the, at the time of roughly the birth of Christ, and then you look at the same information a thousand years later, and you look at different regions of the world and ask the question, who is doing best? Uh, well, in, in the year 1000, uh, if you had said Europe is exceptional, people would have laughed at you. The, the part of the world that was exceptional at that time uh, was northern Africa. It, it was what is today the Islamic world. Um, China and Europe were about the same, and Africa was about at the same income level. The rest of the southern Africa. Uh, and then when you look at 500 years later, 1500, Europe has soared ahead of everybody else, and they have stayed ahead. So the first chapter explores what the puzzle is, and it, it makes a claim which is central to the rest of the book. And that claim is that starting in 800, when the Pope created the Holy Roman Empire and created Charlemagne as the first Holy Roman Emperor, in almost all of the rest of the world, throughout almost all of human history, the head of religion and the head of government was the same person, or one was clearly superior to the other. But once the Holy Roman Empire was created in Europe, the head of religion, the Pope, and the head of government, the Holy Roman Emperor, and also several other important kings, uh, were on an equal footing. They weren't the same person, and they weren't, and one wasn't dominant over the other. And this created competition. And that competition, which is what the rest of the book is about, unfolds to create the advantages that Europe has today, and it's a regulated competition. It's an orderly competition. And the orderliness of it by the last chapter tells us this could be done in other parts of the world. We'll, we'll, we'll come to that. Uh, let's move to uh, topic number two. Two swords, one church, uh, the birth, birth of papal nepotism, the struggle over the investiture of bishops, the Pope's war with the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, Bruce, fill us in. So uh, before the year 800, broadly speaking, uh, the, the Pope was really dependent on uh, the... Byzantine emperor. And in uh, the mid-700s, the Pope figured out how to escape the clutches of the Byzantine emperor, and it had to do with a struggle uh, that we don't need to go into, but in any event, uh, by creating the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, in the process of moving towards that, in, in, Solomon's father, Pippin, helped the Pope to secure his position uh, against the East. And part of how he helped to do that was to 
defeat opponents of the Pope and grant a huge amount of land known as the Papal States to the Pope. Uh, this was in about 752. Now, the Papal States uh, both secured the Pope politically, but also made the Pope an extraordinarily wealthy person as Pope. So it, it wasn't, that wealth did not pass to the family of the Pope once the Pope was dead. It passed to the next Pope. The Pope's solved the puzzle of how do we keep all this wealth as the papacy is uh, a position to which the wealth adheres rather than the individual. And the solution was nepotism. Uh, so beginning with the creation of the papal state, the uh, papacy and much of the church becomes extremely money-oriented and um, nepotistic, uh, we get, for example, by the 900s, uh, the daughter of the head of uh, the city of Rome, so the, the Tusculum family, uh, daughter of Morosia, uh, she, she is the mother, grandmother, or great-grandmother of eight popes. It's just become a family business. Now, this leads in... Uh, 1036, to the election of one of her great-grandchildren, or grandchildren, sorry, one of her grandchildren, uh, as Pope. And he gets overthrown, he comes back, there's a lot of fighting, and he decides he doesn't want to be Pope anymore. So he turns to his godfather, and he says, you know, I want to quit. Can I resign? And his godfather, who's a religious man, says, well, popes have resigned in the past to save the church when they were sent to salt mines to die. You're not in that circumstance. And besides, being pope is really a valuable position. I suggest instead of just quitting, you sell it. I'll buy it. So his godfather buys the papacy. The Holy Roman Emperor objects to this corruption, uh, this simony. And so we get the beginning of what is called the investiture struggle. The Holy Roman Emperor overthrows uh, this pope in 1046, and we get this a struggle uh, over who controls the appointment of bishops, including the highest bishop of all, the pope. Now, this struggle. Let's 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 uh, Bruce. Yeah, let's move yeah. to topic three. Bruce Buena de Mesquita is our guest. Uh, the book, The Invention of Power. Topic number three, Bruce. The Concordat Game. The terms of the Concordat. You're going to have to fill us in on this. and What, is, what yeah. that means. So we resolve this struggle between Pope and Emperor with the Concordat of Worms and the Concordat in London and France. What is this? It's, it's, it's a treaty. And it seems very simple. What it says is, from now on, the Church will nominate people to be bishops, and the Holy Roman Emperor or the French king or the English king or a local ruler often will say yes or no to the nominee. Says yes, person becomes bishop. But if he says no, the rules of the game change from the way they have been before. The income generated by the, by the bishopric will go to the secular ruler, not to the church, until the secular ruler and the church agree 
on who should be the bishop. This creates a new strategic environment with totally new incentives. And the Pope, of course, can punish kings, and the king can say no to a nominee to get the money. If a, if a bishopric is poor, the Pope is going to nominate somebody who is loyal to the church, and the king is going to agree because it's not worth angering the church for so little money. But if the diocese is moderately wealthy, if the value is, of the money is greater than the cost of irritating the church, then if the Pope nominates somebody the Pope wants, the king will say no. So the Pope nominates somebody the king wants, somebody who will be loyal to the king, shifting political power to the king in exchange for the money. So the church gets, gets money, the king gets political power. This means that the church has an incentive to slow economic growth, because the more dioceses that are wealthy, the more that the Pope loses political control. So the church now has an incentive to keep people poor. Kings, on the other hand, now have an incentive to make their citizens, their subjects, wealthier, because if they are wealthier, then the king will gain more control, because bishops were the critical juncture between the policies of the church and of the, so to use the term improperly, faith. And if a diocese is really wealthy, if you have a bunch of really wealthy dioceses, well, then you, the king doesn't need to trade money for power. He can have both. And so you get the Protestant Reformation. So we see that this simple deal, church nominates, king says yes or no, money goes to the king if he says no, means that the kings have an incentive to make Europe, their domains wealthier, and the, the church has an incentive to make things poorer, a radical shift that's going to lead to lots of other developments. Now, Bruce, let's go to topic four. Uh, you call it secularism surges. What's going on? So if we think about how to determine who is expected to favor the church and who is expected to favor the king, as a candidate to be bishop, one thing we can look at is what kind of job did the person have before they became a bishop? So, study biographies, and we can distinguish between, for example, somebody who was the head of the king's exchequer, or was an ambassador or a tutor to the king, worked for the secular government, or was a priest, a deacon, a monk, a hermit, was in the religious world, belonged to a holy order, was in the religious world. What happens because of this deal is that in the poorer bishoprics of Europe, the bishops, as they had been before, remain overwhelmingly religious in their orientation. That is, they come out of previous jobs in the church. But in the wealthier seas, in the places that are uh, on trade routes or places that uh, were relatively large cities uh, and so forth, we see a great expansion in the selection as bishop of people who worked for the secular government 
and not for the church. You didn't, by the way, have to be uh, even a priest to be a bishop in those days. Bruce, so, Buena de Mesquita is our guest. Uh, we've got to take a break. We're right back with Bruce. It's the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5. The word in Orlando. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The word. Now, here's Pat. We are back with our guest, Bruce Buena de Mesquita. The Invention of Power is his book. Bruce, we're at uh, topic number five. The road to prosperity, you call it. What's, uh, what's happening? So what's happening is because of these new incentives, the kings who can escape the punishments of the church those who are farther away from Rome, uh, begin to uh, expand economically so that they gain political control. They get more bishops in their pocket instead of the the church's pocket. And closer to to Rome, the opposite is happening. So prior to the Concordat, the portions of Europe that that, uh, were close to Rome uh, were wealthier than the parts of Europe that were farther from Rome. And what happens after this deal is signed, and not before, that's very critical, because uh, a lot of other arguments that it doesn't happen before the deal is signed, that what is today Protestant Europe begins to become wealthier than what is today Roman Catholic Europe, starting just after the Concordats are signed in 1122. By the end of the 13th century, France has become the wealthiest place in Europe. It was one of the poorer parts of Europe when we look before the Concordats were signed. And it's the first place to break with the church. Uh, The the king begins to appoint the pope. So uh, wealth is spreading. And if we look at the difference in the expansion of trade, between Northern and Southern Europe, for example, uh, the places that were covered by the Concordat uh, and were wealthy versus not, they should be today about 40% wealthier than the parts that were uh, in the clutches of the church. And that's true today. Uh, They are about 40% higher per capita incomes. So wealth is expanding in the places where the kings have gained the political leverage, and it is not expanding in the places where the church has political control because of the incentives created by the Concordat. Before the Concordat, the church was all for economic growth. Now they, they introduce, comes back the idea, for example, that idle hands are the, the work of the devil a concept that the church had not invoked for hundreds of years before this. Uh, Now, uh, Bruce, here's another interesting topic. Uh, Number six, the road to papal serfdom and liberation. Tell us about this. So one of the things that's happening in this period is, as I said, the the, uh, kings in 
the places that have signed on to the Concordat, not in places that haven't, like Spain, uh, are getting wealthier. And that wealth incentivizes them. They get to this third circumstance where they have rich enough dioceses they don't care about who the bishop is. And so the church begins to lose political control. First, in, with France in the Avignon Papacy, which begins in 1309, the, the Pope is the vassal of the French king. He is chosen by the French king, not by other bishops, uh, not by the church more broadly, uh, not by the Christian community. He's chosen by the French king to do what the French king wants. And the French king has the uh, Pope, for example, destroy the Knights Templar, uh, which were among the biggest bankers in Europe. They owed a lot of, uh, the, the French king owed them a lot of money, and, and they had been established by the Pope. They're destroyed. And that gets the French king off the hook economically. By the middle of the 1300s and climbing into the 1400s, much of what is today Germany is wealthy enough to break from the church. We could have had the Protestant Reformation much earlier, but for the Black Death, the plague that then wiped out about a third of Europe's population and destroyed much of the wealth that had been created. So the, so the church gets a little bit of a, a resurgence, although it's got problems with uh, why it was not able to prevent the plague, complicated subject. But by the end of the 1400s, the economic conditions are right in England and in Northern uh, Europe to begin to see a fracturing of the church's control. And we get the Protestant Reformation with Martin Luther in 1517. Uh, the English join a little later. Uh, much of Europe joins, uh, much of Northern Europe joins shortly after or in the next 50 or so years. And the papacy is back to uh, where it was at the time of Emperor Constantine during the Roman Empire when it has to compete with other religions, something it didn't have to do before. And this is spreading more tolerance in Europe. Of course, the church isn't happy about it, and the break is not over deep, there are deep religious differences, but the, but the break politically is over money. If the kings want to control the money, they don't want the church to have a claim to it. Bruce, uh, topic seven, the birth of states, the birthing of representative democracy. Tell us more. So because the, the secular rulers, the kings, can become more powerful if they generate more wealth, it used to be they got wealth by conquering other territories. Now they, because of the concordats, they have another way. If they can get their population to be more productive, produce more wealth, then they can have greater political control. But of course, people rebel against the idea that they want to pay higher taxes. They, they rebel against the efforts of the uh, secular rulers to coerce them into greater productivity. And so a bunch of secular rulers, almost exclusively signatories to the Concordat, who have become wealthy, work out they can make a deal. Look, you produce more wealth, which makes me more powerful, and I will give you a say in taxing and spending. 
So they create parliaments with taxing and spending authority, uh, and that launches democracy. So in 1297, for example, the English king creates uh, signs the confirmation of the charter going back 100 years, uh, more than 100 years, uh, to, to, to 100 years, sorry, uh, to, to Magna Carta. He says that from now on, no monarch of England will raise a new tax without the permission of the Lords, the Church, and the Commons. And so we have the creation of the House of Commons and of, and of Parliament. This is only happening in those parts of Europe where the kings were, their, their domains were signatories to the Concordat and where they had expanded wealth. It's not happening in other places that expanded wealth, but were not signatories to the Concordat and so forth. Bruce, so this creates modern democratic government. Your last chapter, we got about a minute and a half left. Uh, it's simply called Today. Uh, tell us about that. So if we divide Europe into four groups, those that didn't sign the Concordat and those that did, and within each group, those that were wealthy when they, at the time of the Concordat and those that were poor at the time of the signing of the Concordat. And we ask, how are they doing today? The wealthy places that did not sign have much, much lower per capita incomes today than the wealthy places that did sign. They even have, the wealthy places that signed have even lower per capita incomes than the poor places that signed. If we look at how democratic they are today, by standard measures, the ones that signed and were wealthy in the 12th century are the ones that are most democratic today. The ones that didn't sign and were wealthy are the least democratic today. If we look at life expectancy, we see the same pattern. You live longer if your ancestors 900 years ago signed the Concordat. Even if we look at the distribution of Nobel Prizes in science subjects per million population, they are 20, almost 20 times more likely to win a Nobel Prize if you, per million people if you are from a country that signed the Concordat and was wealthy in the 12th century than a didn't sign. My guest has been Bruce Buena de Mechisca, the book, The Invention of Power, Popes, Kings, and the Birth of the West. Stay with us, folks, here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. We've got more. It's the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word in Orlando. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. Uh, Bruce uh, Buena de Mesqueda, our guest in that first segment, talking about his book, The Invention of Power. Well, we go from New York City to Greensboro, North Carolina. Alex McFarland is our guest. Uh, he, uh, well, he's the co-host of Exploring the Word on American Family Radio, done many things, but... Uh, he and Bert Harper have, have done all of us a great service. Uh, their new book is out. It's called A Hundred Bible Questions and Answers. And Alex McFarland, the, uh, the co-author, is with us. Uh, welcome to Orlando, Alex. How are you doing? 
Well, thank you very much for having me. It's a great honor to be on, Pat. And, uh, you know, um, I wish I were in Orlando with you because where I am, there there's five inches of snow on the ground. Oh, boy. <laughs> well, come on down. The whole world comes down at this time of year. So well, we, we'd welcome you as well, Alex. Um, indeed, I, indeed. I want the background on this book, what brought it about. Well, well thanks very much. You know, um, we've got a radio show called Exploring the Word, and it's a live call-in Bible show. And over the last decade, we've had, you know, hundreds of callers. And I just started keeping a notebook of what I felt like were some of the interesting Bible questions that people have. And in um, early 2020, you know, everybody's housebound with COVID. Well, a publisher called me and said, would you guys write a book? And originally it was going to be 200 Bible questions. And uh, believe me, we had plenty of questions, but it, it, it was going to be too large of a book. So we ended up, we we did the top 100 Bible questions from the first 10 years of Exploring the Word, and it came out in October of 2021, Broad Street Publishing out of Minnesota, and um, the book is doing very well, and I, I think it, it speaks to the hunger that people have, the spiritual questions, and just the desire to know more about the Bible. Well, let's dive in. Section 1 is simply called... The Bible. Uh, tell me a question or two there that really got your attention. Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, people call and they'll ask, you know, um, who wrote the Bible or, or how did the Bible come to be? Or um, they might ask, you know, um, all of those stories in the Old Testament about, you know, Noah and the ark and Moses part of the Red Sea. Did that, did that stuff really, really happen? Um, Interestingly, there, there is a passage in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 6, it talks about the sons of God and the daughters of men. And the word in Hebrew for sons of God is the word Nephilim. And that's probably the most common Old Testament question, is who were the Nephilim, were and, and there's a lot out on the Internet, like they might have been aliens or something like that, or giants. And so that's one of the most common Old Testament questions. But, you know, people, um, they want to know about the Bible and how to understand it. And, of course, we believe that uh, the Bible points us to Jesus. And so the book, in, in a sense, is also very evangelistic because we— we do our best to explain the challenging passages, but we try to explain also the, the overarching message of salvation that we believe um, is, is the main point of the Bible. Alex, uh, tell us about Section 2. Uh, it's called Alleged Bible Contradictions. Uh, what's up? Well, uh, you know, for, for a lot of skeptics, it's almost like the Bible is guilty until proven innocent. Um, I, I believe that, as Psalm 119 says, that the, the Word of God is perfect, flawless. You know, I believe Jesus, when Christ said in Scriptures like John 10.35, Jesus said the Scripture cannot be broken. We, we believe that the Bible, because it's God's Word and God can't 
lie. The Bible can't lie or err. Now, nevertheless, some skeptics will say, well, you know, there's contradictions. Um, Did Judas hang himself or did he fall and hit the ground? Uh, at the the tomb, was there one angel or two angels? So what we say in the book is, you know, there are challenging passages. Sure, there are passages that are challenging and take a little bit of study to understand, but verified contradiction, never. Um, You know, so so what we do, we, we look at a lot of the contested passages and uh, we, we explain, and we quote a lot of scholars, and we, we've done a lot of research. I mean, we worked, you know, over a year on this book, but um, no necessary contradictions. For, let me give you an example. If I said Alex and Pat are having a conversation, and we also say Alex and Pat are not having a conversation, you know, it's... It, Either or, but not both and. Those those two statements are not reconcilable. Either we're having a conversation or we're not. But th- there really are no places in the Bible that are that have necessary contradictions. You know, one gospel writer talks about an angel at the tomb, but it doesn't say only one angel. It merely quotes one angel that spoke. Another gospel writer says there were two angels. So, it, you know, since one is a subset of two, it's not a necessary mistake or contradiction. But so what we've tried to do is help, you know, strengthen believers and also persuade non-believers. Alex McFarland is our guest. We're talking about uh, the book he's co-authored, 100 Bible Questions and Answers. Uh, section three, Alex, you call Old Testament challenges. Uh, what do you mean by that? Well, you know, there are there are really kind of uh, two challenges. One is theological challenges, and the other are what we might call um, historical challenges. Now, theological or moral challenges would be like God... God told Israel, you know, go into the land, kill the Canaanites, the Amalekites, the, you know, Perizzites. Modern 21st century readers might look at the Bible and they're like, well, goodness, that's kind of harsh. You know, go into the land and kill all these people. You know, uh, was the, the Old Testament God cruel and, you know, maniacal? The question becomes, and believe me, I realize, you know, you have to kind of put your thinking cap on to process things like this, but the question becomes this in the Old Testament as Israel fought battles and took the the land they'd been given. Did God have a morally sufficient reason for calling for the killing of the Canaanites? And, And the answer is yes. Now, Believe me, you know, having spoken at 200 universities, literally, you know, a lot of young people, they'll say, well, I would never believe in the God of the Bible because he was genocidal. He called for, you know, the Canaanites to be killed. But here's the thing. Israel was moving into the promised land over more than four centuries. And during 
those years, they had to fight for their lives. And repeatedly, um, I believe Satan moved through different ones to try to kill the Jewish people. I mean, if you read like in the book of Esther, there was a man named Haman. He, he was the Hitler of the Old Testament, wanted to kill all the Jewish people. Why? Why? Even to this day, we live in a time of anti-Semitism. Why have the Jewish people been maligned and persecuted? Well, it's because salvation came through the Jewish people. Jesus was Jewish. And I believe Satan has, since time immemorial, persecuted the Jews because Satan knows that his ultimate demise is through Jesus, Yeshua, the Jewish Messiah. But what we asked about in the Old Testament challenge about Israel being told to defend itself and kill its enemies, I asked the question, what would be worse for several thousand Canaanites to die that had more than 400, 420 years to repent? Well, if you don't repent in 420 years, you're probably not going to repent. <laughs> what would be worse, the killing of a few thousand pagans or for humanity to not have a Savior? And obviously, for humanity to not have a Savior would have been worse than the killing of several thousand people bent on the extermination of the Jews. So as hard as it might seem for the, the wars and the battles and the, the, the deaths recorded in the Old Testament, really God did have a morally sufficient reason for telling Israel to take the land, defend its position, defend itself, because ultimately because of the raising up of the nation of Israel, Jesus was born. That, that's an example of one of the challenges we work through. Alex McFarland, our guest. Talking about 100 Bible questions and answers. We have another segment with Alex right here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Stay with us here all day long on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour. AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. There's a wonderful new book out, 100 Bible Questions and Answers. Alex McFarland is the co-author. He's with us. And Alex, we have moved uh, to Section 4. And this section is simply questions about God. Uh, Tell us about this section. Well, Pat, thank you very much. And again, let me say how much I appreciate your show and the Um, the network, and so thank you for having me on. You're doing the vital work, my friend. But questions about God. People ask questions like, if God made everything, who made God? Or how how can God hear the prayers of 7 billion people all at once? (laughs) Or um, could could God ever cease to exist or something like that? Uh, By the way, People have asked questions, um, sometimes that have a little bit of a logical import. They'll say, you know, if God could do anything, could he cause himself to go out of existence? And so we, we use the Word of God to be our source for what we know about the Lord and what we know about eternity, because, you know, human speculation 
uh, can only take you so far, and human ideas and human uh, guesswork can lead to some uh, inaccurate places. But um, let, let me talk about one of the common questions. If God made everything, who met God? And, and the answer is nobody made God. Um, in fact, that's part of what makes him God, is that he is eternally existent. Uh, God just is. And uh, in fact, Pat, in one of the honestly most profound statements in the whole Bible, Exodus 3.14, uh, Moses is at the burning bush, and Moses asks the question, uh, you know, what, what do I tell Pharaoh who sent me? And the, the voice of God from the burning bush very famously says, I am that I am. Now that's, uh, we, could, we could create a library of content just unpacking that profound statement. I mean, it, it, it might not sound like it, but I would submit to you that the Exodus 3.14, I am that I am, is probably the most profound, deepest, mind-boggling philosophical statement in the entire Bible. But basically what it says is, it is God's nature to exist. God is. I mean, we, we don't use a future tense verb or a past tense verb, but forever a present tense verb, God is. God could not not be. I mean, God is eternal. And so we talk about that. That's a question about God. And, you know, that's that sort of segues into the question, uh, could God ever cause himself to go out of existence? Um, no, he wouldn't do that. Um, it doesn't mean God is limited or, or weak. You know, we have skeptics call into the show, Pat, and they'll say, well, if God can do anything, uh, could he make a square circle? Or could God make a rock so big that even he couldn't lift it? And we say, no, uh, and this doesn't mean God is limited or finite, but God only does that which is meaningful. And so when, when a, a, a wiseacre or a skeptic says, well, if God can do anything, I often interject this. I'll say, I'm not saying God can do anything. And they're like, really? We, we thought you Christians believed God could do anything. I said, no, I don't say God can do anything. God can't do that which is logically nonsensical. And God won't do that which is against his word. In fact, Psalm, Psalm 132 says, uh, my word have I elevated above my name. See, you know, we live in a time where a lot of people, things that, that we've always known are sinful. Suddenly, a lot of people don't think they're sinful anymore. No, God will never contradict his word. God will never contradict his own nature. People ask the question, if God can do anything, could God sin? No, because God is righteous, and sin is unrighteousness. So we try to help people in the book, Pat, we try to help people understand who God is based on what God has shown us about himself from the pages of Scripture. Alex McFarland is our guest. He's in Greensboro, North Carolina. We're talking about his book, A Hundred Bible Questions and Answers. Well, uh, Alex, we've arrived at a fascinating section, questions about the Holy Spirit. 
Oh, boy. Uh, tell us more. I'm fascinated with this section. Well, thank you. you. You know, the closest, most intimate relationship that any human has, closer than your parents or even, even closer than your spouse, a relationship that's been operative in your life since conception, and that is the interaction of every person with the Holy Spirit. In fact, Pat, maybe somebody right now listening to this program, you and I speaking, maybe they're they're cognizant that the Holy Spirit is dealing with them. Maybe maybe God is calling you to uh, make sure that you have Christ in your life. Um, maybe there's a listener and you're wondering, you know, uh, am I ready to meet God if I if I were to die, or heaven forbid, if COVID were to take my life, am I ready to meet God? If you're thinking about your relationship with the Lord, that's the Holy Spirit speaking to you. Maybe, maybe you're thinking about you need to uh, call up somebody and do some fence mending and get right with a broken relationship, or apologize, or maybe you're feeling led. You just want to praise God. You're you you're blessed. You just want to thank God. Well, that's the Holy Spirit working. And, Pat, I, I want to say this, too, regarding the church and Christians. Um, in America right now, we so desperately need the Holy Spirit to, to have control of our lives. I, I believe, Pat, we need the Holy Spirit to sweep across this nation like a tidal wave to bring peace, to bring stability, to call us back to some sense of morality. And so we talk about the the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit of God. Um, The question is not, does the Holy Spirit work in every life? No, the Holy Spirit calls out to everybody. The question is, are we going to yield to the Holy Spirit? Will we obey the promptings of the Spirit, or will we resist the Holy Spirit? And that's the question. So we we believe, Bert Harper and I, we believe in the Holy Spirit of God, and we both are convinced that uh, our nation needs the Spirit of the Lord right now. Alex, I want to uh, jump to uh, Section 7. Uh, this one is called New Testament Questions. Uh, what do you find most people are concerned about here? Uh, great question. Well, you know, the New Testament is, it really is the New Covenant. You know, the Old Covenant is put your faith in God and the Messiah that will one day come. The New Covenant, or the New Testament, is that the Messiah has come. He's Jesus. He shed his blood to wash our sin away. He literally was our Passover lamb, and by faith in Jesus, our sins are forgiven. That's the New Testament or New Covenant. And in the New Testament, we've got uh, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We've got a book of history, uh, the book of Acts, the early church. Then we've got uh, the letters or the epistles, and Paul, Peter, John. Um, So, you know, I I think that... um, Part of the job of the, the book is to 
hope people understand that the New Testament is true, it is trustworthy, it is Scripture, and it is relevant to each and every person. Um, but my, my privilege to go to the Holy Land to visit, um, I've, I've done study and visit at 72 biblical sites, which is a great honor. And I, and I would tell all of your listeners that when, when the Bible speaks to things Jesus did and the miracles and the resurrection and Peter preaching at Pentecost and Paul traveling throughout the, the ancient world, um, this is real. Even when you get to the book of Revelation, you read about the Battle of Armageddon. Uh, I have walked the plains of Megiddo, this big open area that will be the site of the world's last battle. And it, it's coming. It, it's going to happen. And Pat, I, having been a believer for 35 years, having traveled and done research on five continents, including throughout Israel, and it's been my privilege to one-on-one interview hundreds of scholars on all sides of the theological spectrum. Uh, I'm convinced the Bible is the Word of God. The Bible is the supernatural book. The New Testament is absolutely true and should be believed and trusted and followed. And what, what we try to do in the book is give people a confidence in the Word of God, but also a motivation to trust what it says, and to put their faith in the one who is the theme of the book, Jesus. Um, Alex McFarland is with us. What a book, folks. Make sure you get this. It's going to be so valuable to you. A hundred Bible questions and answers. McFarland and Harper uh, put it together. Uh, let's, um, let's jump to the end. We've got just time for one more. Uh, section 12 is called Questions About the End Times. Uh, do you find people fascinated with this, uh, Alex? Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness, Pat. People are very fascinated with it because, you know, I think even even those that are not necessarily church-going folk, maybe they don't have a spiritual background or, or Christian, well, I mean, you can't look at the world and, and not be concerned. I mean, my goodness, the pandemic— the fluctuations of economies, violence, uh, even what's interesting, the, the rise of anti-Semitism right now. There, there's so much, even uh, just as you and I are doing this radio broadcast just a few days ago, there was a, an Islamic terrorist that took a Jewish synagogue hostage. And, you know, what's, what's interesting is that the news media journalism is under so much spin. And here's an Islamic terrorist who took a synagogue hostage and demanded uh, the release from prison of possibly the world's most vitriolic Islamic anti-Semite. And all over the media, the FBI is unsure what motive he might have had, but they said it's unrelated to issues of the Jewish community. No, the whole thing was about uh, animus against the Jews. Now, so we're living in a time, and everybody gets it, where the world is wired up. Literally, planet Earth is a global surveillance state. Uh, There is this rise of terrorism and violence, 
and persecution of Christians. Now, what was interesting, persecution of Jews, and because of the, the gay LGBTQ trans movements globally through political organizations, there's been this um, really abolition of moral boundaries. And all the while, there's the calls to defund and abolish the police, open the borders, no boundaries, no rules. We are living in a time, folks. We are living in a time where the world is ripe for the scenarios we read about in Revelation 4 through 20. And so, yes, um, two of the top three most Googled questions in 2021, what happens after death and are we near the end of time? Isn't that amazing? Yes. So um, the good news is that we can be ready whenever the end of the world may come, whether it's our own mortality, we die, or the world comes to an end, Christ returns, we can be ready, we can be prepared by putting our faith in Jesus and experiencing His forgiveness. Ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to Alex McFarland, uh, the co-author of this wonderful and important book, 100 Bible Questions and Answers. Um, I'm so glad that... uh, Alex was with us. We have a wrap-up right after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. You're listening to the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. We will be right back. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. Well, thanks for joining us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. We're always very pleased when you decide to plug in with us. Um, I, I want to just tell you that my latest book has just come out, uh, co-authored with my friend Mark Atterbury. It's called Every Day is Game Day. Uh, it's a 365-day devotional. Uh, every story uh, is a sports-based story. Uh, so whether you're a sports person or not, I think you'll enjoy it and get some value from it. And then, of course, we we pivot off that sports theme and uh, tie it to a scripture verse or uh, some spiritual aspect. So uh, we're we're excited about this book. Go up to uh, Amazon. Always a wonderful way to order books, of course. Go, go get uh, Every Day is Game Day by uh, Pat Williams and Mark Atterbury. Advantage Media Group put the book out. Well, folks, we're back next weekend for more on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Stay plugged in all day to uh, the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word in Orlando. Uh, Hang in there and God bless. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the Pat Williams Power Hour. Join us again next week at this time where faith comes by hearing the new AM 990 and FM 101.5. The word. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
the explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.